At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 451st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who likes good, clean fun on her urban homestead. We're talking with Brittany Schiff about growing food and raising animals. Brittany and her husband Stephen moved to a one-acre urban homestead in 2015 with a desire to rely less on the grocery store and our messed-up food system. Taking homesteading from a hobby to a lifestyle, she bakes bread, cans food, makes butter and cheese, line-dries clothes, and even has a small soap-making company. They have 28 fruit-bearing trees, several raised gardens, and plans to add an in-ground 2,500-square-foot row garden in the next year. They had no previous livestock experience, but now raise 90% of their family's meat, egg, and dairy needs with chickens and ducks for meat and eggs, as well as goats for milk. All this, and she loves every bit of it. Welcome to the show today, Brittany. Are you ready to rock your homestead? Heck yeah. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. It started in 2009. My husband and I were flipping through Netflix and we came across a documentary called Food Inc. And it grossed us out, the things that we were learning about the commercial food industry. I know, right? Yeah, super gross. And that sparked a food growing fire in me. But at the time, we lived on a 7,000-square-foot lot in a subdivided neighborhood in a homeowner's association with lots of rules. And I wanted to be on more land and have space for growing animals and gardens and fruit trees. But since this is where we were at the time, I had to work with what I had. So we took half of our backyard and we built four small raised bed gardens and got a few chickens. This is in your HOA. That's in my HOA on a little... 7,000 square foot lot. Wow. Yeah. And then we got a few more chickens because of course you can't just have two chickens (laughs) and I got a few more. Yeah. And eventually we got up to like 15 chickens and of course their neighbors complained. So we had to get rid of them Mm -hmm. and waited a year. We made a better coop that we thought would stifle the noise a little bit more and got chickens again and the neighbors complained again. So we sold them. And then we dabbled in quail for a little while, but for a few reasons, that was short-lived. Quail are very messy. The roosters actually crow quite loudly, and I think they're louder than chickens. Uh-huh. So then, fast forward a little while. In 2013, we met a local family who lived in Gilbert, just like we do, in the southeast area of the Phoenix metro area. And they were growing a lot of their own food on just over one acre. They had a huge garden. They had fruit trees very mature fruit trees producing tons of fruit, and they had different livestock, chickens, ducks, 
goats, turkeys, pigs. And we became fast friends. Wow. And they introduced us to meat rabbits. And if you've never had a smoked rabbit, you are missing out. Well, two weeks later, because it was so good, mm-hmm. of course, I had already gotten my first pair of breeding rabbits. They were quiet. And as long as I cleaned out the area where they lived a couple times a week, they didn't smell. So our neighbors never found out. And that was how we stuck it to the man. And we grow would start growing our own food while we were still in our HOA. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm over here smiling because this is such a path of discovery for you. I love it. <laughs> it was a, a long transition, but it really felt good to us to finally be producing our own food on such a small area of land. Mm-hmm. Over the next few years, we expanded our rabbit program and grew over 500 pounds of healthy grass-fed rabbit meat for our family using a vertical cage system with a footprint of about 10 feet by 12 feet. Wow. And that was only breeding in the winter because in Arizona, of course, it's too hot to breed year round. Right. So finally in 2015, after six years of searching for properties, waiting for the value of our current home to go up so that we could sell it, we found a house in our price range on an irrigated acre on a county island with the most lenient zoning that exists in this area, which is pretty much as good as it gets in Arizona. Oh, yeah. And I can still drive. Yeah. It, it's the best of everything. And I can still drive 10 miles, be at a mall, should I ever want to go to a mall. <laughs> right. And so here we are, almost four years later. Our fruit trees are mostly still babies. They were all planted in the last 18 months. Um, but next year is going to be great. And it was worth the wait that it took to get here. Wow. How cool is that? So I'm going to drive up to your homestead on a county island. By the way, you have flood irrigation in a county island. You are so correct about them being very lenient there. That is awesome. If I'm going to drive up the driveway, what am I seeing? Tell me about your homestead. So up along the side of the driveway, we have four citrus trees. It's a very narrow space next to a concrete driveway. And I knew that I didn't just want it to be hot and concrete jungly because that's I'm trying to go hard and fast the other way. Mm-hmm. So we've got some citrus trees over there that I got from you this winter. And then in the front yard is all garden because I learned a hard lesson that gardens don't belong in the backyard where gates get left open, goats get out and chickens mm-hmm. can come and destroy everything in it. Yep. So now all of the gardening is done up front and then you can walk around the property. We've got a double gate and that's where all of the animals are. And the primary pasture is about a quarter of an acre where all of the chickens and goats are every day. And then we have a secondary pasture that we can rotate to and for the most part, the ducks hang out over there, but we'll move the goats over there seasonally as well. Mm-hmm. So you have both ducks and chickens. We do. Tell chickens me about Chickens are that. the newest addition oh, to nice. the homestead. Uh-huh. We just got them this February, and I didn't think I would love them. I wanted them for a long time, but my husband kept saying no, and I was really nervous. But my argument was that if we hate them, we can eat them. <laughs> and so okay. I won, and I got some ducks. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I love them so much more than chickens already is because they don't scratch big potholes, dust bathing in the pasture. Right. And they don't destroy the berms because we need the berms to hold in the irrigation. And they're so much more fun to watch as two-week-old ducklings. They're swimming already and learning how to play in water. And I just think they're hilarious to watch. Wow. So you, you have ducks and you get eggs out of them, yes? Okay, we get eggs. And let me tell you, we get eggs. These ducks that we have are not laying yet, but we do have some older ducks, adult ducks that we got on Craigslist that are laying, and they lay every 
single day without fail by seven o'clock in the morning. And I think that they're going to be much more reliable layers than the chickens. This Mm -hmm. is still in the first six months of this adventure, but I think I'm going to love ducks more than chickens ultimately. Wow. And how does the, because duck eggs are a little bit bigger, right? Mm-hmm. And how do, what's the taste difference? Is, is that something you can explain? I, I don't know if there's actually words in the English language to explain <laughs> how much better a duck egg tastes than a chicken egg. Wow. But because they're such, they're great foragers. Uh-huh. And so they're getting all that green matter into their system. And you can tell in the egg because the yolk is rich and firm and orange. And it's not, it's not a a pale yellow like any egg that you would find in a grocery store. And it's even a brighter color than the chickens that we have that are also pastured every single day. Mm -hmm. And the flavor, it actually has flavor. That's so much better than a chicken egg. We prefer the duck eggs in our house and we sell the chicken eggs at a local farmer's market. I was going to ask you what you do with all your extra stuff because an acre can produce a lot of produce and a lot of eggs and a lot of food. What do you do with it all? It absolutely can. Right now, we are not doing things very intensively. Right now, we're focusing on subsistence farming just to produce for our needs. Uh, My husband works out of the house in construction. I also have a day job that fortunately I can do from home. I don't Mm -hmm. have to travel out of the house to an office. And so I'm able to be on farm. But because of having so many other responsibilities, we also need to make sure that we're taking care of us because that's the reason we're doing this in the first place. So right now we're producing exactly what we need for eggs plus a little bit of extra for this farmer's market. The milk is exactly what we need for just fresh milk drinking. And I make raw milk goat cheese as well. And that gets sold a little bit of it to family and friends. But Technically, in the state of Arizona, it's illegal. Everything I want to do is illegal. (laughs) Well, illegal until you do it the way they tell you to do it, right? Which costs lots of money. In order to become a creamery here in the state of Arizona, we would have to put up about $100,000 of infrastructure. Oh, is that all? (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, that's okay. Pocket change. uh, You know, mostly what I encourage people to do anyway is is to grow enough food for your family and friends. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, that's the goal. And I'm really excited for our fruit trees to start producing. And then we can be preserving more food and just be sharing so much more and do more fun things with it. You know, mulberries grow like a weed out here, and you can do so many fun things with that. And you can make jams and jellies, or you can put it into pastries. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's the stone fruit and uh, peaches, apricots, plums that, you know, our, our apricots are just starting to ripen right now. And the peaches are coming soon. And it's like, wow, it's amazing. It's that, overwhelming the yeah. amount of stuff that we can actually grow here. Yeah. Well, and you have an acre flood irrigated. I have land envy right now that you have an acre. I only have a third of an acre and I've always so wanted more. It's really a huge blessing. I love looking out. When we moved here, there actually was one apple tree in the yard. Huge, great big apple tree. I I imagine it's over 20 years old. Wow. And it, the first year that we were here, it gave us probably 450 pounds of apples and we didn't know what to do with them. We actually raised pigs one year just on the fruit from that tree. Wow. Well, that's not surprising. I have an apple tree in the backyard that I'll probably get 300 pounds of apples off this year. It's incredible. You know, I, and I talk about this with people all the time. There's this this notion of lack, not having enough. 
is a figment of our imagination. I say that it only lives between our ears because when I look at the abundance that comes out of my yard, food-wise, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And I'm sure you're finding that. Absolutely. There, Like I said, with this apple tree, last year we were out of town when it was coming ripe. And I had 15 or 20 people coming to the house and picking for their pigs, for mm-hmm. their family, for making applesauce, for making juice and freezing it. Some horse owners came and filled five-gallon buckets over and over again. Yeah. And we came home from being out of town, and there was still some left for us. <laughs> there you go. So one of the lessons that I learned, one of the big harvest seasons in the low desert here in Phoenix, Arizona, which you're, you know, you're, you're in that area, is May and June. So I actually don't travel in May and June because of that. Yes, that's smart. This was yeah. a once in a very long time kind of thing that we were out of town seeing family in Kansas over yeah. the 4th of July. Yeah, well, there you go. So you mentioned in your bio, you've turned this hobby into a lifestyle. What do you mean by that? It's an everyday choice. Anything, anything that we do is a choice. Everything that we do is a choice. And I can choose to turn on my dryer and dry my clothes and consume some energy. And even though we have solar power on the house, Mm -hmm. it's still going, I'm still consuming, right? And so I think that our goal here is just to consume less from outside the home. That's line drying clothes. I don't have to turn on the dryer. By canning our own food, I can go and pull a reusable jar out of the pantry and then I wash it and I put it back and I use it again instead of going and getting tin cans off of the shelf at the grocery store and it just goes in the trash can. Yeah. Another example is making bread. I can choose what I'm putting, what ingredients I'm putting into that bread and feeding my family. I don't have to trust. I don't trust whatever I have to go and buy at the grocery store and give to my family. Yeah. Well, this this is all pointing at our, they call it the standard American diet. And if you think about the acronym, it's SAD. And it is so yes, true. Right? It is. Right? It is. It is. That is so true. So what is the impetus behind you getting fired up about all of this. What what happened? Was there something that occurred that in your life that you said, oh my gosh, I got to do this? Well, I mentioned that we had watched Food Inc., which then led us oh, yes. to a few other documentaries. And I honestly don't remember the name of the documentary, but I do remember one detail in it. There was a gentleman who had grown up on a conventional hog farm and they used antibiotics. And he took a boar tusk to the knee and he was in the hospital getting cocktail after cocktail of antibiotics, trying to save his leg. Mm -hmm. And the infection was about to go into his bone and he was going to lose his leg. And finally, they were able to find the right combination of antibiotics in order to fight the infection and save his leg. And he went home once he was healed, of course, and he scrapped the entire conventional hog farming operation and turned it into a wooded grazing organic hog operation. And I remember looking at my husband and saying, oh, we're not buying pork for a really long time. We need to figure something out. There's Mm got to be something better. And then we started collecting chickens and then we were getting in trouble for having chickens. And I don't like being told that I can't do something. So that was kind of when it, it started us looking for property and wanting to get going on this journey mm-hmm. and it is a lifelong journey and this is I hope I I hope I never have to live outside of this kind of lifestyle. I can't imagine having to go back. It it's really amazing like that, isn't it? There's there's nothing better than 
you know, picking a fresh peach or apples or mulberries. We've been, you know, harvesting mulberries in March and April of this year and and, in early May. And it's just, it's, there's nothing better than that. There literally is not. We've got that giant apple tree in the backyard and our kids are now almost six and eight. And for the last four years, they spend almost every opportunity they have during apple season up in that tree, just eating all the apples. And I love that they have that experience. They right. can run out into their backyard, climb up into this giant apple tree and eat lunch. So I haven't done this in a while, but that's epic. And I, and I, I always know that something's epic when it kind of, I kind of tear up a little bit when you were sharing about that. It's like, yes, that is the reason that we do this all day long. All day long. Gotta love it. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the ducks. What kind of ducks do you have? So right now we have mostly runner ducks. It's a very lightweight breed. They're mature, only about three and a half pounds, uh, but they can lay 180 plus eggs in a year. I think they're going to do better than that here in Arizona just because we have so much more sunlight. We've got We've got longer days than the farm where I got them from. And then we also have a few of them just for fun, because this is our first time, we got some Pekin ducks, which are giant meat breed. As oh, wow. adults, if we were to let them get that big, they'll be nine pounds. But we're probably going to be harvesting them in the next couple of weeks. Wow, cool. And so the harvesting process. Um, about 10 years ago, I'm mostly a vegetarian, but I'll still eat poultry. And about 10 years ago, I decided that since I was still eating poultry... I was going to go ahead and raise some meat birds here on the property. And over the course of a couple of years, I raised like 25 different chickens and butchered them. And it was, I had never done that in my life. And it sounds to me like you hadn't either. No. When we had the rabbits in our backyard, in our little tiny backyard, that mm -hmm. was the only thing that I had ever, animal that I had ever harvested. My husband grew up hunting a little bit, but that's pretty different. Field dressing a deer versus going into your backyard dispatching your animal and the fulfillment that we get from that now knowing that the animal was born here mm -hmm. we know absolutely everything that it ate our boys gave it a name it was loved it got neck scratches and we know that it was dispatched humanely and we know that that animal is treasured because of the sustenance that it's going to give our family yeah. and you know, friends, if we have them over and just the whole big picture of it, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's one of the things that I discovered as I was raising, you know, meat birds, meat chickens and butchering them is that the value for me of that process increased dramatically. And yes. And it, something I noticed when we raise our meat chickens is mm -hmm. that we pick them clean when we eat them because we know what it took to go mm -hmm. into raising that animal and caring for it for weeks and weeks and feeding it and watering it every single day and cleaning up after it. And that's very valuable. And so, yeah, you use up every last bit and then we save the bones and they make bone broth. And make bone broth. Exactly. So how do your, how does your family react? You, you said your kids gave these animal names. It's, uh, we couldn't do that here at the urban farm anymore. <laughs> Heidi, Heidi and I have gotten to a place where we, you know, these are our pets now, so there's no, you know, dispatching them. How does your family work through that? How does that work with, uh, you know, a couple of young boys? When we moved here, the boys were two and four. So they were pretty young 
And early, early on, we knew that they, we wanted them to be a part of this process. We wanted them to be a part of this lifestyle. We didn't want them to grow up and be adults saying, oh, yeah, my parents raised animals. I want it to be a family endeavor. Mm-hmm. So it just, from the day that something is born, they understand, all right, this goat is meant for this. And I don't have a problem with them having a name. In the beginning, I did. I said, oh, no, don't name it. You're going to get attached. But they they understand that it's part of the process and we can't eat if we don't have those animals because we don't buy meat from the grocery store anymore. And they totally understand it. And in fact, our youngest son, he'll be six in the summer. His favorite book is actually a book on butchering and it's a very graphic photo book on how to break down an animal. They, they just get it and they are owning it. And it is really, really rewarding to see. Wow. I, I tell you, the first time I, I butchered a chicken, it was it was a process and it was really a spiritual event for me. I had to take a deep breath. And in that moment, I became much more of a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely challenging. My husband and I, a couple of years ago, did our first goats. And that was the biggest animal that we had born on the farm, raised and harvested ourselves. And it was hard. Yeah. It was really hard. And it still is. Four years later, it's still hard. But it's necessary. And to us, it's biblical. God gave us the animals of the earth to sustain us. And it's our lifestyle. And that's, yeah. that's what we do. Uh, you know, and I, I have great respect for that whole process and for you and your family for doing this. Thank you so much. And the, the reason I did it was because I wanted to see how that worked. Yeah. It's really, I think, an important thing to be in touch with where your food comes from. I hear kids talk about wanting to go to the grocery store or, you know, buy, buy this because they think that you, you can only get it at the grocery store and hearing kids think that milk comes from the grocery store. Right. Uh, there's a, yeah, there's a preschool across the street from, from where we live and they come over every fall and do a tour. These are three and four year old kids. Mm-hmm. So they, they have, they're starting to learn. They're starting to figure things out and they have some ideas of their own. And I remember last fall, there was a little girl and they came over and I, I usually let them try and milk one of the goats. And she stood in front of that goat and she looked at me and she looked at the goat and she said, this isn't a cow. That's the only place milk comes from. And at one, one hand I was like, okay, at least, you know, it doesn't come from the grocery store. Right. Wow. But there's more than just cows. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Those are the moments that are, I think are priceless. Yeah. It was a pretty fun exchange. Yeah. Well, that's cool that you bring students in to see your space. Tell me about that. So my son actually went to preschool at that little church preschool over there uh, two years ago. And that's how it got started. I was was literally right across the street. And so I just walked him over there. And one of the teachers was outside one day and saw us walking across the street and we got to talking and they do something in the spring where they, they go over the life cycle of a chick and she's got these little infographic things of here's oh, nice. what the egg looks like uh-huh. here and progresses. And they asked me to do a hatch of chickens for each of the classrooms. So now every spring, my kids don't go there anymore, but every spring I take over two incubators full of eggs and I leave them in the classroom and they get to go over about halfway through and go into a dark room and candle them for the kids. And they get to see ones that are moving. And unfortunately, sometimes 
there are some that are not. And then they stay in their classroom and hatch and they get to watch them hatch. And then in the fall, they come over to the farm for their little field trip and Uh they get to see the chicks that hatched in their classroom and do the tour. Brittany, that is epic. That is so (laughs) cool. Well, and you know me well enough here from our interactions to know that I'm all about education around this stuff. So, wow, cool. Congratulations. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I like doing it. Yeah. So your soap making business, how did you get started with that? That was a total accident. (laughs) I love those. (laughs) Yeah. When we were still in our little HOA neighborhood, I was baking a lot of bread And I met a woman who raised goats and she had so much goat milk that she was literally watering her garden with it. And that broke my heart because I just wanted a farm and goats and goat milk. And here she's pouring it on her tomatoes. So we made a deal that because she didn't have time to bake and I was baking and she had the goats, we were trading. And one day I went over there to do our little exchange and she was getting ready to make some goat milk soap. Now I have a condition that my husband calls the inability to say no. <laughs> and I, of course, I said, I could do that. I could make that. And so I started researching soap making and I read a bunch of books, blogs, and I watched YouTube videos. And lo and behold, I made my first hideous batch of soap <laughs> in a Pyrex in a Pyrex bread pan. I still have the corner of it. Actually, I had gifted it to my grandparents for Christmas that year. And after the soap thing kind of started becoming a thing, I I went and asked for it back. And so I still have it kind of like your first dollar when you open a business. I still have my first ugly corner of soap that I ever made. (laughs) So I was just making it to be, again, one last thing that we have to go to the grocery store and trust whatever is put on the ingredient list Mm -hmm. or, you know, more packaging that's going to wind up in a landfill somewhere. And I just started making it for our family. And then I thought, well, I can make this pretty. It doesn't have to be this ugly little chunk of soap. So I started making them look nice. And then one day I had some girlfriends over here. It was right before Mother's Day. Actually, funny enough, it was April Fool's Day. And I had this big shelf of soap drying. And they said, oh, we want to buy some of this for Mother's Day. And I said, yeah, funny, April Fool's, this stuff's like, it's not even pretty. It's, it's a mess. I'm learning. No, seriously, we want to buy it. So they cleaned me out. I had no soap left in my own home. <laughs> and then they started asking for more. And then they posted pictures on Facebook. Look at this soap. Brittany's making soap. It smells so great. Everybody should go and get some of this soap. And it just grew. It just, it, it was the weirdest thing. I didn't even try. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to. And that people see a product that is good for you. It doesn't have any funky stuff in it. And they know that it's better for them. And it, it just happened organically. It just poof and it took off. <laughs> I love that poof and took off. Um, <laughs> so can people buy it online? You can buy it online. Uh, my website is azsoapbar.com. And I also sell it locally at Agritopia. It has a farm store. Yep. If you're familiar with the Gilbert area. Oh, yes. Awesome. And uh, unique about your products? Funny enough, we don't put goat milk soap in it. Every once in a while, I do get a custom order for some goat milk soap if someone has some extra, extra skin sensitivities. Uh But I don't put any artificial fragrances in my soap at all, ever. 
never going to happen. We only use essential oils for fragrance or for smell. And then all of the colors are 100% natural, either botanicals or clays or just the natural color from the essential oil. Nothing fake whatsoever. But there is goat milk in it. I don't. It started out being that way. But oh, then it. we just it, the milk was more valuable for us for consumption purposes. Next year, I'm going to have twice as many goats that I'm milking. And so I'll probably expand a goat milk soap line, mm-hmm. if you will, and I'll do more goat milk soap. But I will absolutely do it for a custom order. But for the regular, all the time products that I have, no, they do not have goat milk in them. Got it. I'm going to shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. Okay. I think for me personally, I fail the hardest and the most often when I'm in a hurry and I try to add something Mm. or when I'm trying to do too much at a time. Specifically, I can think of a very recent failure. Uh, This winter, in addition to the broiler chickens that we had growing at the time, there's a local farm on the other side of the valley that asked us to raise 100 layer chicks for them, only the eight weeks. So they were no bigger than a quart jar by the time they left here. But I thought that I could fit everybody in the same pen, split it in half. New layer chicks got the brooder. Broiler chickens were out with the rest of the space in the pen. But our brooder isn't super leak proof or draft proof. And we had a really cold, wet winter here in Arizona this year. And truly, a predator is the only thing that will kill a chick faster than being cold and wet. So... Once the layers were picked up to go to their farm, or by the time they were being picked up, we had lost almost half of them, which was devastating, devastating just because of our brooder not being able to handle all the rain and wind that we were having. I mean, it rained for like three days in a row. Mm -hmm. It was a lot and it was cold. So once they were gone, then our meat chickens had more space again, but because of being kind of crowded in a smaller area of the pen for a few weeks before the the layer chicks left, our meat chickens had to be fed for an additional two weeks just to catch up to the weight they should have been. So it took them longer to harvest. So what I learned is don't raise layer chicks in the winter unless you've got a really, really good brooder and you can keep them dry and warm all the time. And don't overcrowd chickens because it's kind of like a goldfish effect that we're finding is that if they have more space, they can grow more readily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good thing to know, isn't it? It was pretty pretty valuable. I mean, yeah. we lost a lot of those chickens, and that was horrible. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I hate it when one dies. Yeah. Well, this is this is the learning process that we all get to go through, and this is the reason I asked this question, is because there's this learning process that we all have to go through, and I like to ask this question of my guests so that hopefully – our listeners can avoid some of these challenges, you know? Absolutely. And this is our fourth year growing chickens. It's not like this was our first time and we still had an epic failure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that and I'm glad we learned from it. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think that our biggest successes here are everyday little ones. When we harvest enough green beans from the garden to make a side dish for dinner, Mm. or we get to enjoy fresh raw goat cheese with homemade bread with ingredients we can pronounce. Or when our oldest son, who's almost eight, he likes to come up with business plans and new ways to make money all the time. Really? He's, mm-hmm, he's always coming up with something. He's decided that when he's older, he wants to take over the soap business. And he's always coming up with new product ideas. In fact, when he was four years old, he had an idea to put 
little tiny toys in bars of soap so that kids would want to wash and want to be clean because there was a reward on the inside. Yeah. They got a toy at the end. Yeah. That was 100% his idea. Wow. And he wanted to do the same thing with bath bombs. And so that one actually took off a lot better. And we were making bath bombs. I loaned him his startup cost. And he was making these bath bombs and putting little bouncy balls and toy dinosaurs and little, just little trinkets, little kid toys. Yeah. And he, I think he probably put over $500 in his bank account that summer. Really? After paying me back. How old? He was five at the time. Oh, wow. What did you just run it over to the farmer's market and have a booth? Yep. Exactly what we did. At the time I was selling at the Agritopia Farmer's Market every Wednesday night and I would take a little bucket of kids' toy bath bombs and it was a school night, so he didn't always get to come. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, when he did come, he loved talking to people about this idea. He would tell wow. anybody who would listen. And that's a win. That's a huge win. That is a huge win. I uh, I started yeah. my first business when I was 15. He started when he was five. I got to love it. <laughs> yeah. And then our youngest, he loves everything to do with the farm. And his willing spirit is unbelievable. He gets up and he'll go and feed the ducks. And he wants to go and get the eggs. And he's he's eager to help. And he's eager to please. And he wants to learn. And he wants to be involved with everything. And he's the one who's favorite book is the book on butchering. He just mm-hmm. wants to learn everything about what we're doing here. And that's like, that just puts a huge smile on my face because that's why we're doing it. Right. I've got a huge smile on my face because you're, you know, the way you're sharing it, it's like this, I'm beyond words. This is exactly what I'm talking about. I've been screaming about this in the world for 30 years. This is exactly it. Good on you. It's good stuff. So what drives you? All of that stuff about our kids and their passion for things, I think that's what's propelling me more and more. I get driven by knowing that every day we have the opportunity to teach them these life skills. How many five and seven-year-olds do you know that can scald, pluck, and eviscerate a chicken? Right. Probably not very many. Mm -hmm. Um, They know that going to the grocery store is more expensive than growing our food. They know that growing our own stuff tastes better. They know that it's better for our bodies. And for my husband and I, stewarding that learning and fostering this environment is something that we take really seriously. Wow. And I see it. Good job. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? This is the third time now that I've talked about this book, and that's how good it is. This is a book that we got early on in this adventure that we're doing because we had no knowledge of how to butcher and break down anything bigger than a rabbit. It's literally just called Butchering, and it's by Adam Danforth. It's got great photos with step-by-step process of breaking down a few different kinds of poultry, rabbit, lamb, goat, and pig. Mm -hmm. I actually just noticed this morning that the foreword is by Joel Salatin, which you know is good if Joel Salatin wrote a foreword for it. Exactly. Yeah. I actually have a photo somewhere on my Instagram of me standing in our kitchen. I've got the first lamb that we ever butchered sitting up on our kitchen counter and I'm breaking it down. And in the corner, I can see that I've got this book propped up and, and I used it. I definitely used it and it was practical and it helps and it helps you break it down into like market cuts if that's what you want to do mm-hmm. or if you want to just, you know, out of out of a whole animal into primal cuts. It's, it's very informative. It's a really, really good book. 
And then I do have one other resource. It's Please. not a book. It's a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And so the people that we knew who introduced us to meat rabbits, they became our farming mentors. And sadly, they left the state about, I think, about three or four years ago. And they moved into the middle of Missouri. They're now full-time homesteaders. Wow. And they have an incredible YouTube channel. They do five videos every week. And it's called Living Traditions Homestead. And every, every week, the information is just amazing. It's from gardening to raising animals to baking and preserving food and recipes and tips and tricks on growing things from seed and just unbelievable amounts of stuff. They forage for food out in the forest behind their property. It's crazy. Really Who's, good stuff. Who, who are they? What are their names? Their names are Kevin and Sarah Matthews. And the, their homestead is called Living Traditions Homestead. Nice. I'm going to reach out to them, see if we can get them on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. They'd be great. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I would say start small. It's really great to have big plans. And I think you should absolutely have a one-year goal, 5, 10, 20 years out. Know what you want to do and have those goals set, but grow gradually. And don't bite off more than you can chew because it's really easy to get burned out. Mm -hmm. And when you get burned out, you get discouraged. And when you get discouraged, you want to quit. And this is not something that you master overnight. You can't let failures, not at all. I mean, I'm still messing up four years later. And you can't let your failures derail you because if you're not failing, you're not learning. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Brittany. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, I have the, uh, the soap website. It's, the, the company is called Arizona Soap Bar. But to keep it easy, the website is azsoapbar.com. The Instagram is the same, azsoapbar. And then we also have kind of a personal farmstead, homestead Instagram that is worth the wait, all one word, Farmyard. Nice. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash worth the wait. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org 
forward slash feed the leaves.